Welcome to episode 34 of the Infectious Historians podcast. I'm Merle Eisenberg. And I'm Lee Mordecai. Today is November 1st, and in our episode, we're going to move forward in time to discuss mid-20th century and focus on China, which is a country we've mentioned before, but never discussed in detail. So I'm really looking forward to that. Right. So China is of central importance to the history of plague, as we have spoken about in quite a few episodes in the past. But we want to spend time on today on its policies and how these policies affected people who lived there at the time. And we're going to do this with a theme we talked about recently pretty often, which is vaccinations. Our guest today is Mary Brazelton, who is a senior lecturer in global studies in science, technology, and medicine at Cambridge University. She's the author of the 2019 book, Mass Vaccination, Citizens' Bodies and State Power in Modern China which examines the origins and implementation of mass vaccinations to eradicate smallpox and other diseases along with the emergence of Chinese health policy. Mary has also published articles in a variety of other places and on other topics, including tuberculosis on engineering health and the production of penicillin. She's also discussed her work in a variety of public media outlets over the last half year or so on epidemic control in China today and in the past, and her next project focuses on the history of transportation technologies. So hi, Mary. Hello, and thank you so much for having me on this podcast. Yeah, thanks for coming on. As we started doing the last few episodes, I think it's useful to contextualize this episode before continuing to our usual updates. This is going to be the last one, we promise, I guess, for a little while on this key moment of say 1850 to 1950 and the history of disease. Although I think we're gonna revisit the time period in other non-history-based contexts over the next month. But today is key because I do think it wraps up this discussion by looking at the end of this period, which is we might say World War II and broader global wars of the mid-century when medicine was implemented around the world. But it's also a really good episode to pair with Elliot's from last week, since Mary spends time to discuss the impact of these new medicines on people, how the state began to oppose its will, so to speak, on individuals. Right, yeah, I think that's a good frame to think with today, Merle. And this episode really both ties into the previous episode with Elliot Bowen, as you've said, where at the end of that episode, we began seeing the state becoming more involved with the health of its citizens. And some of the earlier episodes as well, such as Thomas Zimmer's on public health, more broadly global public health, which was episode nine. So we're taking over here from the last few episodes where we talked about modern medicine and its development, what it could do, and transition to talk about how modern medicine gets imposed on people. Now, as state power grows throughout the 20th century, how do people react to its power? And how does this then shape what we today think about medicine and what the state also tries to do? So after all this context, let's start off with our customary intro, a description of the local effects of COVID-19. And I can begin because I actually don't have much of an update this week. So I've been sick for a few days now. It's unclear whether this is cold or the flu. And this was really brought back from daycare from my daughter, Merle, which I'm sure you'll be happy. It, and it was expected, but it still isn't fun when it happens. And more broadly, things are still reopening here. So there are a lot of debates about when to reopen what. But in general, there, there is some room for optimism. Yeah, there's also been an Israeli vaccine under development, which received a lot of attention in the local media. But the first person received it as part of a trial only a few days ago. So it'll probably take a considerable amount of time until this becomes available to broader use. And how are things in Annapolis, Merle? First of all, for the record, Lee, I'm not happy you're sick. I just said it was going to happen when you sent your daughter to daycare. Well, I'm sure you're pretty happy that you're correct. I mean, it was expected, but still. I guess from a point of view of, I knew this was going to happen, sure, I was proved right, but happy is not the right word. So, so not happy. Thanks for sharing my misery here. But so how are things in, in Annapolis and in the, the United States? I mean, I heard you guys have a pretty significant day coming up this week. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously the election is on Tuesday as usual, we'll release this podcast at the end of the week. So I'm not going to comment on the election at the moment, because whatever I say now will be completely out of date by the time anyone hears it. But I can instead talk about Halloween, which was yesterday, which was quite interesting. Um, in a sense, you know, knock on wood, everything will be okay with everyone around here in terms of Halloween. 
but it actually was one of the more rational things I've ever been around since COVID began. You know, there was actually a really good local plan put in place. I won't discuss how this went, but everyone basically put out tables in front of their house instead of knocking on the houses. Almost everyone put individual candy on the table. So there were no buckets for people to reach into. Some people went so far as to like individually wrap a couple pieces in plastic bags, you know, and then they would sit 10 feet away. They'd put their fire pits out and would just have a few beers and hang out, you know, 10, 15 feet away from people as kids went trick-or-treating. So actually pretty safe and actually kind of more fun and communal than it was last year even. How did you guys communicate about this? There was some Facebook communication. So this is the your neighborhood's Facebook. Yeah, the Eastport Forum has a Facebook page. But it was really interesting because despite all of this, I would say, having talked to my neighbors afterwards and during it, there was probably 20% of houses and kids who normally would have done it doing it. Even though the way in which it was done to me, right? I mean, I was masked up the whole time. Not that there were really that many people on the streets. My kids were actually perfectly happy to wear masks the whole time. Every two or three houses, we sprayed their hands down with, you know, antibacterial stuff, antiviral stuff, I guess I should say. Um, so, you know, it's pretty over the top, but relatively speaking, very safe. I mean, it's far more safe, I think, at this point than eating inside in a restaurant, right? It's probably far more safe than going shopping to Target, right, where you're inside at a place and you're touching stuff and other people are touching stuff. So it's actually a completely irrational feeling. Wait, so you're saying that only 20% of the average number of people who do the Halloween thing did it this time? That's probably my guess, 20, 25%. Yeah. So again, it's a completely irrational thing. It's like when everyone bought toilet paper. And maybe the most important question, what did your kids dress up as? Uh, so my daughter was an astronaut, which gave her an extra layer of protection because she had a giant helmet. So she was fine <laughs> from COVID because of that. <laughs> and then... Uh, my son was a firefighter. Well, I mean, I, I guess all these walks next to the fire station probably helped him. Yeah, one could say he's obsessed. And Mary, where are you? And what are things like there? So I am in Cambridge, UK. And the big news coming out of the UK today is that Boris Johnson uh, last night announced a new uh, lockdown for England starting on Thursday the 5th of November and running until at least the 2nd of December. So it's four weeks of pubs, restaurants, and other amenities being shut. However, uh, school and university teaching is to be allowed going forward to happen face-to-face. -face. Universities are meant to still be open. I mean, universities have not stopped teaching at any point throughout the pandemic, it's worth pointing out. But uh, the government is quite keen to emphasize that schools and universities will, will continue. And if I recall, this was a lockdown that people had suggested should have started two, three, four weeks ago? That's right. Uh, there have been a number of calls to impose a new lockdown. The government, however, was pretty keen to impose regional lockdowns in a tier system that was not entirely clear, I think, uh, to a lot of people. And uh, regions were put into tiers occasionally uh, with very little advance notice. So it's been, I think, quite difficult, especially for regions in the north of England. Um, and there have been a lot of issues with regional governments conflicting with the national governments, um, especially in Manchester. A few weeks ago, there was a particularly contested kind of standoff where the, um, I believe it was the mayor of Manchester was uh, really asking for more financial support from the central government. So there have been a series of conflicts like this. And meanwhile, a variety of scientific advisors have been calling for some kind of, if not lockdown, then greater controls, um, restricting people's uh, ability to go and eat in restaurants and things like this. Um, so it is the conclusion of a very long drawn out call for such measures. And I think it's largely geared towards the winter holidays and the idea that somehow this will allow for a limited degree of 
I guess, travel uh, and family gatherings at the uh, winter holidays. So I'm not really sure how that's going to play out, but that's what the target seems to be for the government insofar as it has a clear target. So you mentioned that the lockdown is going to take effect in England, and that means that Scotland and Wales are not going to be under lockdown? Well, Wales is already under a lockdown, I believe. Uh, you may have seen news stories about the fact that grocery stores in Wales, as part of the new measures imposed there, started refusing to sell non-essential items. Um, and there was some controversy over what exactly constituted a non-essential item or not. So yes, under policies of devolution, different rules can apply to the different states constituting the United Kingdom. So this is applying to England. Because England has such a larger population, it's getting a lot of press at the moment. Uh, but yes, and then to be honest with you, I'm not entirely sure what the rules are in Scotland at the moment, simply because it's so much information to keep track of. And of course, I'm not traveling anywhere, <laughs> uh, much less to, to Scotland, sadly. Right. And have there been voices that call for schools to close? schools specifically? So schools are a tricky question. I haven't necessarily seen very much in the media calling for schools specifically to close. Universities are a completely different story. So generally in the UK context and the media, schools are referring to everything up to and including secondary school. Um, and then universities are treated quite differently. And the uh, Universities and Colleges Union uh, has been very prominent in calling for a move to all online teaching. There have been serious questions raised about students at universities and the situations that they may be in um, under conditions of lockdown. Uh, so there have been quite a lot of calls to move all teaching online as soon as possible, but those have been generally resisted by the government. So with that really useful update, maybe we could transition now to the interview itself. And as I like to joke with Lee, I'm going to ask you the easiest question, but the most loaded question now. So can you give us a brief history of vaccinations, maybe in China, from say the 1920s or 1930s through 1960 or so? And maybe if you can, in parallel, give us a broad overview to remind our listeners some of the political history as well. And we can stop at moments and discuss key things and point out features. Great, that is definitely a loaded question. And I will do my best to give concise answers because there is a real risk here of running right off the rails into too much detail. So I think one thing to say right off the bat is that a history of vaccinations in China that focuses on the period from the 1920s through 1960 in some ways is skipping over quite a lot of useful information before the 1920s. Uh, vaccination, of course, existed in China before that period, specifically vaccination against smallpox, genarian vaccination against smallpox uh, got underway in China from the early 19th century, just to give an example. So there's quite a lot of scholarship that exists that I could go into, but keeping the focus on the question at hand, the story to me really is one of increasing state power via the production and distribution of vaccines within China over the mid 20th century. And my book starts really in the 1910s and 1920s in part because it's a period of importance for the making of a community of people working in microbiology in China, it's also a period of remarkable transformation and importance when you're thinking about China as a polity, because of course it had recently undergone revolution, overthrowing the last empire in 1911 with the fall of the Qing dynasty. After 1911, in the 1910s, a nominal Republic of China is established by Sun Yat-sen and allies and yet that Republic of China collapses relatively quickly, so the common narrative goes into regional warlord and militarist rule by the end of the 1910s. 
in the 1920s, in the period that I really start my own inquiries in earnest, we see a state that is in some ways fragmented, and yet a state with uh, many individuals who are really interested in studying the life sciences in different ways. Um, and I follow a group of researchers affiliated with one particular institution called the National Epidemic Prevention Bureau, uh, which is established in 1919 in the city of what's now called Beijing um, as part of an effort by that nominal but quite weak uh, national state, the Republic of China, to control epidemic diseases. In the 1920s and 1930s, we see interesting change insofar as uh, in 1927, 1928, we have a new political party taking power, the Nationalist Party. If you've ever heard of Chiang Kai-shek, this is the guy who's involved with that party. Um, he's at its head. And from that period, around 1927, 1928, when we see a consolidation of power with the Nationalist Party, we also see new and wildly ambitious state-building efforts. So we see uh, new investment in efforts to promote medicine and public health. Uh, we see new state stability in ways that encourage perhaps what might be called technocratic approaches to governance that are really quite interesting. And so what we see with microbiology during this period are efforts to connect to global communities of research. Uh, we see that Institute, the National Epidemic Prevention Bureau, establishing epidemiological surveillance efforts and offices across this newly consolidated state with the Nationalist Party. Can I jump in and just ask a very naive question for someone not in yeah. the field? Are the divisions between, say, the last dynasty, the Nationalist, and the People's Republic, do people work across those different divides a lot? Or is that something where you work on one form of government or you work on a different form of government? I think with the 20th century, things are a bit more fluid uh, than they may be in other centuries. But you have uh, Qing historians, for example, who are looking at one particular type of sources. So I think really the question is the kinds of source that you are best equipped to work with. Um, so Qing historians train in the reading of palace memorials, very particular kind of documents from the last imperial administration. 20th century historians, on the other hand, I think tend to cross more of those kinds of political kind of chronological divides. And that's in part because of the nature of the sources. If suddenly the People's Republic of China decides that nobody can access the main archive for the Republic of China, so the government that was in place before 1949, then you may have to change your topic of research very quickly at the last minute, as in fact has happened to many people in recent years. Uh, and so, Beggars can't necessarily be choosers, so to speak, uh, when it comes to choosing a particular area of focus. So to bring things back to, to the earlier question about like the development of vaccinations, how involved are, are foreigners in this process? Or maybe to ask it the other way around, how much of these processes is created or, or run by Chinese for Chinese? So that's an excellent question. And I think throughout you do see Chinese researchers taking quite active roles in the networks of microbiology and bacteriology that produce vaccines uh, ultimately. Uh, but that said, you see involvement of foreign organizations and people in different ways. So you might look at the training of the Chinese researchers who are taking prominent roles. Tang Fan, who is the head of the National Epidemic Prevention Bureau during the Second Sino-Japanese War, a key period for the development and formation of uh, vaccine production in China. Uh, he is somebody who receives his first medical training in China, in Changsha, but then goes to Harvard, goes to London, to the National Institute of Medical Research to work with Sir Henry Dale, the Nobel Prize winner, and then comes back to China. Um, and so you often see among uh, the people like Tang Feifan, but also his colleagues, individuals who have received training in China, but who have also traveled in sort of global uh, networks of medical research. Um, so that's one example, but you also see international organizations involved in different ways. So, and I'm thinking here of some of the developments that we see in the 1930s and 40s, the Second Sino-Japanese War 
as the Chinese involvement in World War II was generally known there, brings in a lot of foreign organizations and experts to China. And so some of the most interesting ties and connections that we see happen during that period of war. Uh, so for example, the League of Nations sets up an extensive project that brings a variety of experts and material vaccines to China in 1937 and 1938. So at the same time, the Rock Foundation is sponsoring the travels of Tang Feifan and other microbiology researchers, not to the United States necessarily, but to India, to the Hafkin Institute in Mumbai, to study plague vaccine manufacture there, and to get sample strains to take back to China. So you see quite interesting networks emerge uh, over the course of the 20th century for that reason. And sometimes it's in training, other times it's in the sponsorship of international collaborations. To give yet one more example, slightly closer to home, uh, Joseph Needham, figure who may be familiar to some of you as a historian of science in China, first traveled to China during the war as a representative of the British government to facilitate scientific exchanges. And it was through some of his efforts that we see publications uh, from Chinese researchers in Western journals. So there are a lot of different ways that we see those connections, but I think it is worth noting that Chinese researchers are the ones who are the heads of state bureaus to manufacture vaccines in Sierra. And how separate are these intellectual communities in the sense of publications and research? I mean, you, you mentioned that briefly, but do Chinese scholars publish in Chinese and mostly base their knowledge on Chinese journals or do they import international English, I guess, maybe French, German journals and, and work with those? So certainly in the case of the people that I look at, at the National Epidemic Prevention Bureau, we do see uh, publication in English language journals. We also see things like journal clubs. If you've worked in a scientific lab in the contemporary setting, then you'll know a journal club as a site where the lab comes together every week or so to talk about the latest research. In my studies of penicillin manufacturing, the first penicillin manufacturer in China, that comes out of a journal club meeting of the Epidemic Prevention Bureau, where they discuss the famous uh, Florian Chain paper on penicillin. So we see, I think, quite active connections in terms of reading, but also in terms of publishing in journals. That said, Grace Shen actually has an excellent uh, bit of work on how Chinese researchers in the early 20th century were very selective about how they published work. So she looks at geology, and I don't want to get too far down that tangent, but geological researchers in Republican China uh, would occasionally only publish in local Chinese journals, specifically because they didn't want an international audience, because they were publishing on geology and it was an issue of national security. Um, so there are all kinds of reasons why you might not see a Chinese researcher in any field publishing their work in an English or French or German journal. But as I say, in medical research, uh, you do absolutely see Chinese researchers participating before the war, certainly in all kinds of uh, contests, um, so to speak, or issues of controversy, perhaps, that are being published in, in journals around the world. So you mentioned the 1930s wars and how that's associated with disease. How does that combine with mass vaccination? And I should say saying that phrase is hard, so kudos to you for being able to say it all the time. But how do those things combine together to become you know, the most or an important viable option to stop disease? One thing that's helpful to know about the Second Sino-Japanese War, so this particular Chinese uh, sphere of World War II is the way in which the Japanese invasion in 1937 of basically China's eastern cities results in massive migrations inland. So when Japan invades in the summer of 1937, the Republic of China, which again is now uh, unified more or less uh, under the Nationalist Party with Chiang Kai-shek, they actually move inland, uh, moving their capital from the city of Nanjing into China's interior, eventually ending up in the southwestern city of Chongqing, um, which is in Sichuan province at the time. And so we see the government moving, 
um, into China's interior, into the southwest of China, which is a historic disease well, as Carol Benedict has suggested, for plague and other diseases. Along with the state, we see administrators moving, uh, we see uh, manufacturers in some cases uh, moving, and we see refugees moving uh, in the millions into China's interior, fleeing the Japanese. And we also see soldiers moving. So we have large-scale migrations over territory that has historically been associated with a variety of diseases, including not just plague, but cholera and malarial diseases of all kinds. And that results in epidemic crisis, uh, ranking fairly high on the national estates list of concerns in uh, the wartime period. So as a result, the National Epidemic Prevention Bureau, because it is the state bureau taking national responsibility for the production of vaccines in Syria, becomes central to the wartime state's uh, epidemic control efforts. That bureau moves to a city called Kunming, which is the provincial capital of Yunnan province in the far southwest of China. When it ends up in Kunming, it's tasked with producing vaccines in Syria, and quickly that task takes on new meaning in part because of the epidemic crises that are breaking out throughout the wartime period. So it is in part because of this kind of really quite critical role of epidemics that we see the Epidemic Prevention Bureau kind of stepping up and taking on great significance and then developing strategies of mass vaccination in the wartime period that hold lasting significance. So were there any other options? To, to try and prevent diseases other than mass vaccination? Absolutely. It's really kind of fascinating that mass vaccination became perceived as an expedient strategy for epidemic control, uh, given the variety of other strategies available. And I'm not the only person who's looked at this. Uh, Nicole Barnes has also done a brilliant study of public health in wartime Chongqing in the wartime capital that looks at some of the various strategies of course, age-old strategies like quarantine, uh, but also disinfection, construction of sanitary infrastructure, uh, like water supplies, for example, latrine building. All of these things were health strategies that had been established in the eastern cities that many administrators and citizens had fled in 1937. Um, and so these were strategies that were available. But if you are a military administrator, let's say, and you're looking at moving soldiers from one place to another, you're maybe not that invested in helping build up the sanitary infrastructure in one place or another. But vaccinating a population, uh, on the other hand, offers what look like certain advantages. Of course, that's glossing over all of the challenges associated with actually making and producing and distributing vaccines during the wartime period. And so one thing that we really see is that wartime administrators discovered all of the ways in which vaccination and mass vaccination was quite a difficult task. So how aware are Chinese, let's say regular Chinese military administrators, citizens, refugees, and so on, how aware are they of vaccinations being an option? And was there any resistance to vaccination at this point? Yes. So in terms of how aware different administrators or people are of vaccination being an option uh, for epidemic control, certainly I think uh, among relatively educated, literate populaces, vaccinations or as uh, they might be known, preventive injections to protect against disease, they are pretty well known. That said, in rural areas, you don't necessarily see so much exposure. So for example, in 1942, there was a cholera epidemic in Western Yunnan, uh, and an anthropologist named Francis Xu happened to be doing a research project in that region at that time. Uh, the epidemic broke out and he started interviewing people about the epidemic, and they were sort of hazily aware of vaccination. It was certainly offered locally uh, by a local hospital as an option, uh, and yet the locals weren't too sure about getting a vaccine. Um, there were certain trends, for example, that women were vaccinated less often than men. And when she interviewed these uh, individuals, the ones that he could get access to at least, they would often say things like, I don't want to get a vaccine because it will hurt. And so that brings up interesting questions of resistance. Uh, I mentioned a League of Nations project in 1937 and 1938 to bring medical aid to wartime China 
and that medical aid essentially became making and shipping vaccines uh, across China. And League of Nations staff similarly ran into issues of resistance. Uh, so for example, they attempted to set up stations to vaccinate against cholera and typhoid at highways and at other transportation uh, kind of bottleneck sites. And they found truckers, uh, so drivers of transport trucks, a particularly difficult population to vaccinate because they would say, if I get this shot, it's going to make my arms stiff and sore and I can't do my job, uh, which is going to be a real problem for me. And so you get cases of evasion uh, of a vaccine where it's somebody saying, I don't want to deal with the pain or the soreness or the stiffness. And it is true that in many cases, I look at a range of different uh, vaccinations against different diseases, but certainly in some cases, there was significant pain that was associated with getting the injection. Were vaccines free? So it really depends on the particular context. In some cases, as with the League of Nations project, vaccines are free and they are uh, attempted to be made mandatory. But in other cases, vaccines aren't or local administrations take on the burden of paying for vaccines. But this is something that is difficult to get access to in the sources that I had for wartime China. But it does come out quite sharply in one particular set of primary sources that I look at. Uh, which is from the early People's Republic of China. So after the Second World War ends in 1945, there's a civil war between the Nationalist Party and the Chinese Communist Party. Of course, the communists win on mainland China and establish the People's Republic or PRC in 1949. And in the early 1950s, we see the expansion of a variety of vaccination efforts uh, but we also see propaganda associated with vaccination campaigns. And one of the points in that propaganda that we see is a condemnation of the previous regime, of the nationalist state, uh, not only for offering vaccines that didn't necessarily work, but also for offering vaccines that were too expensive. And so we see this as a particular point of critique by the state. I guess I can ask the looming question, did all of these vaccines work? And if not, what didn't work and what problems were caused by the vaccines? That is a great question. And it's kind of fascinating because the vaccines that were developed and made by the National Epidemic Prevention Bureau, they were often the best vaccines that the Bureau could get access to. They used standard strains that were imported from London and Copenhagen and Mumbai. And yet the state of those vaccines in 1938 or 1941 uh, wasn't necessarily as reliable as we would like in the year 2020. Um, and so we can see this with vaccines against plague where at the time the methods that were used were considered to be good, were considered to be the best option for prevention or protection against plague. And yet now those aren't necessarily used because large scale studies, up to the standards that we might expect from a contemporary context just weren't done until much later, until the 1960s or the 1970s. So this varies quite a lot, but we do see research in the wartime period in China to try and figure out better ways of making vaccines or better ways of using local resources to make vaccines against one disease or another. Um, and so we see, for example, the use of different preservatives for vaccines, depending on uh, what's available in terms of local materials. But there are also a variety of challenges for the production of vaccines that make their use quite difficult. And I can talk a bit about the challenges to large-scale immunization. Yeah, so, so before we get to the, those challenges, could you maybe give us some broad estimates about numbers? So how many people were vaccinated or, or what percentage of the population was vaccinated with regards to various vaccinations or diseases? Sure. So this is quite difficult. And one complication with trying to give definitive statistical statements is that in many cases, vaccines needed to be given more than once in order to be effective. So we see this with like cholera vaccines, you're meant to give them three times in order to be effective. But in many cases, uh, when you have a large mobile population, uh, you're not able to track down people and find them and give them that third shot that they need for a cholera vaccine to be like genuinely effective. So basically, I'm quite hesitant in 
most of my work to really be too bullish about percentages or things like that. But I would say that before 1949, you're looking at quite low rates of vaccination against cholera, typhoid, smallpox in the places that I'm looking at in uh, China's wartime Southwest. So the figures that uh, I've seen suggest that for something like cholera or typhoid vaccination, and often that was given as one vaccine, uh, TAB-C, cholera and typhoid, you see maybe not more than 5% of the population of Yunnan province being vaccinated. And yet that's still significant because before the war, there was no vaccination against these diseases. So, I mean, there was in that particular region vaccination against smallpox in urban regions, but not much more. So it is still significant, but you have to really temper that significance with percentages. And then after 1949, the story changes and it's really one of scaling up quite dramatically. So it's in the 1950s that you do see smallpox, typhoid, cholera becoming the targets of campaigns that do get to 90% and above in human populations. Do you have examples of people having adverse reactions to vaccinations, number one, and then number two, on a larger scale, do you have social unrest as a pushback to this? I would assume less so during the People's Republic to an extent, but maybe that exists as well during that period. So in terms of adverse reactions, I think that the particular terminology can be quite different. So you don't necessarily see that per se, but you see allergic reactions as a concern um, that's discussed in, for example, manuals for vaccinators, especially in the 1950s. Um, and you also see concerns with certain populations being vulnerable, especially pregnant women. And so they're often excluded from vaccination campaigns in the 1940s and 1950s. But in terms of adverse reactions, it's difficult to get very specific, at least in the literature that I've seen. There are concerns with things like expired vaccines and the dangers of giving vaccines that don't necessarily have any efficacy because they've not been preserved in the right way or they've not been transported in the right way. And I'm happy to talk a bit more about that. But to answer the other question about social unrest, I think the kinds of resistance that I see to vaccines, it changes over time. And so I think what I see more than rioting in the streets or outright resistance in the way that I think we've come to expect in the contemporary context of like anti-vaxxers in the US to give an example. What we see instead is evasion of different kinds and avoidance of vaccines. Um, so in 1937 and 1938, when the League of Nations is instituting vaccination stations in cities in the interior of China, they train inoculators who are really, really active and who will basically try and chase people down to give them vaccines. There are forcible vaccinations that are given in the capital of Chongqing on street corners. And yet, and so that term forcible incorporates quite a lot that's often elided in the record. In the 1950s, I was able to look at archives of vaccination teams in the provincial capital of Kunming in the 1950s. And there you really see quite interesting statements about the kinds of resistance that were encountered. And during this period, vaccination against, for example, smallpox is mandatory. Uh, meaning that if you don't agree to it, then there is a degree of coercion that is implied, if not stated outright. In reading the records of vaccination teams, you see a real emphasis on persuasion rather than coercion. And I think that there are a couple of reasons for that. The CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, especially as it consolidated power, made an effort to portray itself as a benevolent state, um, as a benevolent power, and so in records that I've seen, which again are quite partial, they are not national necessarily when looking at this particular set, but what I see is real emphasis on trying to persuade people to go to vaccination. But again, in a context where it is mandated by the state. Um, and so for example, there's a case of one particular old man who needs to get a vaccine against smallpox. And so a team is sent in the early 1950s um, to convince this guy, old Mr. Lin, that he needs to get a vaccine against smallpox. And there's this long, very flowery account in the archives where the team reports, oh yes, you know, we uh, had the team leader talk to him for hours. 
you know, trying to convince him of the need to get this vaccine. And finally, he accepted after putting up a fight for years. And, you know, everything's great. We've succeeded. Look at what a great job we did. Obviously, these records have to be read very carefully in the context of their time with full attention to the fact that these reports are meant to be written in a particular way, stressing successes, discussing failures as well. But that's just one kind of particularly vivid example of the kind of way in which resistance is talked about. Yeah, I mean, that begs the question, right, is if the top of the line of the state wants this to be a persuasion campaign, then that's it, we report up the line, right? I mean, see, so he would write it in this yeah. way that we persuaded him rather than holding the guy down and stabbing him with a needle. But that's, yeah. you know, not going to be reported. Yeah, no, and I think that is the question is how do you get such high numbers of vaccination success in this context? Then I think you have to read the records very, very carefully. So moving on in time a bit, so we've heard in previous episodes that in the second half of the 20th century, so let's say the 50s and 60s, there were all these broader global pushes, for example, to eliminate smallpox and other diseases. So how, how involved is China with these global developments? Let's, let's start with that. So the standard narrative is often that after 1949 and the establishment of the PRC, China was isolated from global health efforts in a major way because it uh, was out of the World Health Organization until the early 1970s and it had its borders closed and was not giving information to groups like WHO. And while that is true, I think what we see if we look at the history of global health a bit more broadly is a slightly more complex picture in part because uh, thanks to the alliance between China and the Soviet Union in the early 1950s, we see China participating in Soviet socialist networks of health in really interesting ways. Uh, and I'm actually working with Dora Varga at Exeter on a project on socialist networks of global health uh, after the Second World War to explore that because there's a lot, I think, of future research to be done. Even after the Sino-Soviet split in the late 1950s, uh, we see the PRC working and using medical diplomacy to cultivate allies in what was then called the developing world or the global south or the third world in interesting ways. And that has to do with very particular political circumstances, namely competition between the PRC and the Republic of China, which still exists, but on the island of Taiwan. Each of these governments is nominally is claiming authority over one China that includes the mainland and the island of Taiwan. Um, and so they're competing for recognition as that authority with a variety of the kind of non-aligned states as they're called. And so we see medical diplomacy being a part of those greater negotiations and machinations in interesting ways. Could you try to define maybe what exactly is medical diplomacy? Sure. So it's the involvement of medicine, so medical aid, material aid, training programs, other kinds of exchanges of expertise and knowledge and material in service of broader political goals. And I can give an example if that would be helpful. In the 1960s and 70s, China sent a variety of uh, medical aid to Tanzania as part of a medical diplomacy program that got involved in all kinds of uh, places in Africa. But in Tanzania, China sent medical teams uh, of what were known as barefoot doctors at one point in time. They sent uh, medical materials, so things like clinical equipment that might include vaccines, but it might include um, bandages, hospital beds, that kind of, of material aid. They set up programs um, discussing the Chinese approach to public health and how it might apply to rural Tanzania. And Alicia Altofer Ong has done a lot of work on that particular case. Um, but it was in service of this uh, goal more broadly in Africa to have China recognized as the single legitimate authority over one China. So is China mostly on the giving end or the receiving end of this medical diplomacy? So in that particular case, uh, it's on the giving end. And I think we see it largely in that role as the donor rather than the recipient of aid after the Sino-Soviet split. 
So in the early 1950s, you see the Soviet Union acting as the donor, sending hospitals, sending nursing teams and physicians to China. But after that split in the late 1950s, then I think you do see um, cases of medical diplomacy where China is the active party reaching out, you know, making connections on an anti-imperialist basis and saying, you know, we are also anti-imperialist, let's help you fight against former colonial powers, that kind of thing. So picking up a thread that you mentioned about how people see Chinese health and disease post-1949 and how maybe it should actually be thought about, taught, researched, how should we then write more global histories of pandemics and disease and vaccinations, perhaps, that center China more specifically? Well, I think one thing to say is that there are a lot of people doing really good work right now on some of these questions. And I think, you know, if the history of medicine is not adopting global approaches, not just that look at China, but that look at other parts of the world, then we really have to ask ourselves what we're doing. And so I think there's a question of sources, right? And I know that in other episodes of the podcast, you've had discussions about language and the ways in which the language of particular sources might uh, affect the kinds of studies that are done. And I think certainly it's important to have a greater diversity of linguistic sources um, and training historians in different languages is a really important uh, work, I think. Um, so looking at the case of China, being able to go into archives in China and Taiwan and other places, accessing research articles, first-hand accounts, historiography in China, all of those are important aspects of what somebody like me does, but there's actually quite a vibrant community of people working in the history of medicine and public health in China. Um, and so, you know, Xiaoping Fang, who's uh, just got a book on the El Tor cholera epidemic is about to come out, I think is a good example of the kind of work that's being done that's really good. But there are so many more people whose, whose work I could cite. So in some ways, I think it's about raising attention to the good work that's already being done, but then also training students to go into archives around the world to the extent that that's possible in these COVID times, but also to be able to read not only the primary, but the secondary literature from different parts of the world. I think that's really important. So I'll ask the other side of this question. So I guess we can all agree that centering China is something positive, but in the context that China is often stereotypically depicted as really the origin of diseases, of all these diseases, especially in the West, and COVID is like the, the latest example, of course, how can we or should we avoid perpetuating the stereotype? So the history of medicine and public health has often, I think, pointed out that popular narratives of epidemics and pandemics are obsessed with origins in a fascinating but often quite harmful way. So a colleague of mine at Cambridge, uh, Rich McKay, um, has done a lot of work on the concept of the patient zero and how this is quite a harmful concept. In his case, uh, looking at AIDS uh, and the AIDS uh, epidemic, of course. Um, and so I think there's a way in which this question of blaming China in terms of the origins and associating uh, the Chinese people as a whole with the very specific origins of this pandemic is harmful in a similar way. Um, I think in the case of COVID, uh, it's kind of fascinating because uh, several figures have noted that, you know, this is happening in China and that is for all kinds of important proximal reasons. And yet, it's happening in part because of global processes um, of industrial capitalism that we should really be looking at and thinking about. So Andrew Liu, Laura Spinney, um, and others uh, have written about how, you know, the kinds of industrial farming practices that produce the particular harmful interspecies entanglements, uh, which appear to have given rise to COVID, those are the results of global investments um, by a variety of different corporate entities. And that's something that's important to consider how 
blaming particular groups, stigmatizing particular groups on a, on a population scale for very specific processes can be really harmful. It's important to consider a variety of motivations and reasons for how we've ended up in this position and how that particular outbreak has become this global problem. Uh, the ways in which management of the outbreak in different national and regional contexts has made this such an intractable problem. So that's perhaps not really a satisfying answer, but for me, it comes back to that way in which the history of medicine has pointed out the harmful impact of focusing too much on origins and origin stories. I totally agree with that. And as you kind of mentioned, origins is usually associated with some level or sort of blame at least. I think that's right. So I think on that note, which has drawn us back to the present, which I think is a really nice reflection on the state of the field and on where we are today during COVID, uh, I just wanted to thank you so much, Mary, for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to be able to speak with you. Yeah, thanks so much. So wanted to introduce Tori Zerl again, who's our assistant producer, who's here with us to discuss the last segment and to thank her for putting together this episode. Hi, and thank you again. Always fun to be on. Yeah, it's great to have you on. So I can start off and, and say that one of the things that struck me during the episode was the scaling up of, of state power, really. Right. So Mary mentioned that early vaccinations were supposed to be mass vaccinations, but they only reached very low percentages. I think she mentioned kind of like offhandedly a 5% number. And that was the case in, in the pre-war period. But after, the, after World War II, the state becomes much more powerful and can and does vaccinate much higher numbers of its population. So I think she said almost complete. Yeah, this was something that clearly came forward, I think, in the beginnings in the conversation with Elliot last week. But as I think we talked about at some point, Lee, you know, this is the major change from World War II onwards, right? It's the increasing amount of state power. It's a nice way in which you should probably read more Foucault, as I tell you all the time. No, that's fair. But the, the point is, I guess, that you see this effect in different places around the world. Yeah. Again, Lee, you need to read your Foucault, right? This is the birth of biopolitics, but you know, we can talk about this another time. I thought it was interesting when she was talking about the stereotype that could be traced back to China or this search for a patient zero. It would be convenient, you know, if we could blame it on somebody for something, but it's dangerous and often not even true. Like she mentioned the AIDS pandemic and how for decades it was linked to someone named Dugas, but turns out it wasn't even correct. And they, you know, retracted that, but these myths or these stereotypes kind of live on. And I think what she was saying about being mindful of that and trying to understand it from a different context and preventing it are all very important, um, much more than finding something to blame. Yeah, to me, the, the, the entire patient zero discourse or question is actually very interesting, right? Because some diseases do have a patient zero, other diseases do not, right? So for COVID, we don't have a patient zero. We all kind of vaguely know that it comes from China, but no one that I read or heard at least seems to care who was the first person who got COVID. It's not an interesting question in public discourse. Yeah, I mean, I would go farther in some ways and say after a disease reaches a broader region, we might say, tracking the origins or trying to figure out where it began is really not that interesting of a question, nor is even to an extent the transmission of it, right? I mean, at this point, you know, no one is really talking about the transmissions and the spread of COVID around the world. I'm sure people will do very detailed studies of that in the coming decades. 
But after the beginning discussion of how did it go from China to Iran to Italy, it is what it is and it is where it is. And its impact is now what it is in particular places. Right, but to bring things back to Tori's point, I think for AIDS, we do have a very different narrative, right? There is a specific person on a specific flight who is supposed to have introduced AIDS to a country. And that's not something, again, that I've heard discussed during COVID at all. So one possible interpretation of this is the entire background of AIDS and AIDS being seen as someone more of a disease, more, more than a quote unquote natural disease, and maybe something that has some moral weight or, or moral issues involved with that. So marking someone as a patient zero there might be more powerful than marking just a random person as patient zero in COVID. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think, as we've long discussed, not on the podcast, Lee, but just separately talking, AIDS is obviously a topic that I think deserves not just one episode, but a number of episodes. I think that's something moving forward we're keen to put together. Yeah, and I think we will do that at some point. It's just interesting to think about the very different manifestations of discourse on different diseases. Yeah. The other topic I thought was interesting was the back and forth actually you guys had about globalization, we might say, and state power, right? So that it's not just the emergence of state power that strengthens some of these things, but how global these connections were really from an early point, right? I mean, she remarked already by the beginning of the 20th century how deeply influential both people from China were going abroad and people from abroad coming to China to shape public health happening there. And that reminded me of some of the episodes we've had about the Middle East, right? So the Ottoman Empire, the Iran episode about how public health developed in those countries. So it seems to be the same process, really a globalization or a global community or, or maybe the emergence of a global community of health practitioners and public health practitioners somewhere around the turn of the 20th century. I mean, it started earlier on, maybe mid-19th century, but it really comes into force near the turn of the century. And I think the third pandemic really shows it, the third plague pandemic that we've discussed several times in the past. Yeah, I think that's fair. That's a good point. So the other thing I'm realizing, based on, I guess, the last month or so of discussions we've had with people, is how many more people are in the field as academics than in our own period, right? I mean, just how many people, how many different places we could really talk about. I mean, we could go on this really forever. There's almost an infinite number of countries and diseases and medicines that we could talk about once you get to, say, the late 19th century and moving forward. So you're comparing this to, let's say, broadly speaking, pre-modern? Yeah, I mean, obviously, broadly speaking, there's more people who work on modern history than pre-modern history. I fully recognize that. But it does seem both very, very different in how people ask questions and how they approach the sources and how much more you can focus down on a people or a place. Yeah, although I'm sure it has a lot to do with the amount of sources you get, right? So when you start getting detailed records, say from the late 19th till let's see, mid 20th century, you get all these pretty big stories, big global stories, which have different local manifestations. And I mean, the sources are there. So if you're interested in, let's say, China in this case, or India, or any other country, really, you can just go and investigate that in archives, which is not something that we as pre-modernists really have. Definitely not we as late antique or ancient historians. Yeah, no, that's fair. It's just an interesting thing as we've done a number of these more modern episodes how much some of how we do history and how we think and how broad we might ask questions are just very, very different from modern historians. I mean, broadly speaking, my sense is, again, that the stories are bigger for this period, right? So let's say, again, 1870 or so till 1950. Now, I'm not saying if the stories are really objectively, whatever that means, bigger, but I think that the way people study these stories there's much more of a feeling that these stories are somehow both more influential for our present 
and more impactful in their own times. They're also more optimistic. I feel like, you know, after the 1800s, it starts to become that medicine's very successful and health is very successful. But before then, uh, a lot of medicine was more likely to kill you. You know, maybe it's just a little happier for people to study that. No, I think it's a good point. And I think it, it really builds into our conception of science as something that's broadly speaking, again, positive, it can help us, can save lives. Telling these stories over and over in different versions, different locations, different times, kind of reinforces that idea, right? Reinforces that science can help us, science can save us. Look at what science has done in the past, which, as you say, Tori, that's not a story we get to hear once we go further back in time. I'll just say I don't buy any of that, but that's, you know, a fair point in, in the general mentality of how people think about these things. I mean, I think Guy Geltner's work a number of weeks ago points out the flaws in this narrative. You say, when you say you don't buy these things, so do you mean you don't buy the narrative itself or you don't buy that science is that helpful? I think this is for a broader philosophical debate that we should have someday, Lee, maybe on the podcast. So thanks so much again to Tori for working with us on this episode and for chatting with us in this wrap-up segment. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Tori. And so as we conclude this episode, Marlon, I've seen you have some kind of unusual topic to discuss today. Uh, which is about the, the Sean Connery movies. Now, Sean Connery passed away a couple of days ago, which I guess is why you want to talk about these. But yeah, I mean, wh which Sean Connery movies do you remember the most or are you most fond of? Yeah, so Sean Connery passed away yesterday, which is now Saturday, October 31st. And I actually watched last night after Halloween, the first James Bond movie, Dr. No. Have you seen that, Lee? Yeah, when, when I was kind of like in high school, I think we had, there was a marathon of James Bond movies. So every day there was a, another James Bond movie. So, and I think that happened twice. So I probably watched them all twice. Yeah, I mean, so I watched it. It was, there's many things fascinating about the film. The leave it at misogyny and sexism is very obvious. But it's also obviously a fascinating look into early 60s masculinity, among other topics, which is fascinating. I mean, you know, he's shirtless for most of the movie as like a sign of masculinity. But, you know, he has basically no muscles, relatively speaking, you know, about my level of muscles, I'll say. Yeah, I won't comment on that. But do you accept the truism, so to speak, that his Bond movies are the best that he's like the best Bond? Of course, he's the best Bond. That's not even a, a question. Do you disagree? I didn't like his Bond movies. Maybe it's because the first Bond movies I watched were with Roger Moore, who's like the fifth Bond movie or so. So that kind of like became my standard. And as a kid, so I watched these as a kid when I was like maybe eight or nine or so. So any other Bond seemed like not the real Bond. I mean, why, why have all these random people show up as Bonds? I mean, Roger Moore is like the only Bond possible. And, and that thinking, I guess, has persisted. This explains so much about you, Lee. Roger Moore is objectively the worst Bond that was ever in existence. There was a worst Bond. I think George Lazenby or something, right? That's yeah, yeah. we're not even just, he doesn't count in the general <laughs> Bonds. I know someone who... Just learned a lot about you, and I'll leave that alone by your choice of Bond characters here, Lee. Well, I won't comment on that, Moral, but the way you speak, this podcast seems to be doubling as like a psychological analysis of myself, which I guess I'm, I'm, I'm honored to have. Um, but yeah, but broadly speaking, I would say that after the age of 25 or so, I don't think I've watched any Bond movie at all. I mean, none of the new ones. I know Daniel Craig is, I guess, is still playing as Bond but I haven't watched any of those. Some of them are quite good, so I'd recommend them. The other Sean Connery movie I just want to shout out since it was very influential for whatever reason, probably because I was a young kid when it came out, is The Hunt for Red October. Yeah, I watched that once. It was, I'd say it was kind of boring to me. This is a really important movie in my young childhood, so I'm very hurt. 
Do you know which movie, which Sean Connery movie is influential for my childhood? The Rock. Yes, The Rock. <laughs> it's also a good movie. It is good. It is good. And I actually watched this a few years ago. I mean, the message that that movie shows or portrays is actually a pretty progressive message when you think about it. Yeah, I thought you were going to say you love that movie because Nicolas Cage is in it. And I know how much you love Nicolas Cage. Yeah, I think as a teenager, that movie was one of the movies I, I liked the most. And Nicolas Cage, yeah, he, he played pretty well. I mean, compared to other Nicolas Cage movies, at least in that movie. There's also a Latin quote there. I don't know if you remember that. No, I don't. It's a Latin quote from the Ennead. I just want to shout out the fact that, Lee, did you know there's a correlation between number of people who drown in swimming pools and the number of Nicolas Cage movies that have come out? Yes, and I use that in my presentations as a, as a longtime Nick Cage fan. Or not really anymore, I mean, but definitely in the 90s, he had some good movies. Face yeah. Off, if, if we've, we're transitioning to talk about Nicolas Cage. But no, Sean Connery was actually good with The Rock. I think he was like, he was about 60 years old when he made that movie. And it was pretty impressive for the time. Yeah, that's fair. Well, as they say, RIP. So I guess we can conclude our episode on this note of reminiscing about Sean Connery movies. But before we wrap up, we would like to thank again Tori Zerl, our assistant producer. Cameron Tretavian, our sound editor, and Veridra Kanati, our webmaster. Till next time, stay safe, stay socially distanced, and let us know your favorite Sean Connery movie.